We are spending Advent this year looking at the theme of reconciliation. We spent the first two weeks looking at how we are reconciled to God, really that being the central message of Christmas, about how that prompts our need to be reconciled in the close and the important relationships of our life. But today, we're going to broaden the scope a little bit. Today, we're going to talk about extending the ministry of reconciliation to the world. Is there any doubt, and Pastor Sheldon mentioned this in the greeting, is there any doubt that our world could use just a little bit of reconciliation right now? This week, we marked the 40th anniversary of the tragic death of John Lennon. And a lot of people spent time reflecting not just on his music, but on his commitment to peace. And so those those ideas of peace and reconciliation, they, they hang heavy in the air for us right now. Here's a truth about us. Between you and everyone else, between me and you, between me and everyone else, there is always space. Reconciliation challenges us to do something with the space between us. And specifically, we can do one of two things. We can use that space in order to create further distance. In that space, we can notice all the things that are different between you and I, and we can make a point of concentrating on what's negative about those differences. We can even use those differences to make it feel like you are somehow lesser than me and my tribe. Or we can allow reconciliation to prompt us to close the space, to narrow the distance, to work towards connectedness and restoration. It's exactly what Jesus did. It's why people are so fascinated with his life and with his relationships and with his stories all of these centuries later. We're going to look at one of those stories today. But before we do that, I want to have you turn with me again to the core text for this series in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. I'll give you a moment just to find those verses in your Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes this amazing passage about the work of reconciliation. And he says a few things in the passage that are really kind of key for understanding the story we're going to look at a little bit later this morning. The first thing he mentions is what it is that prompts us to be invested in this challenging task. And let's be honest, reconciliation is challenging. It's cumbersome, it's time-consuming, it's messy. And it's also so very important to the life and health of the world. So what is it that prompts us? Well, here's the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. It is because Christ's love compels us. What it is that we've experienced in our own relationship with God through Jesus propels us to look for places in our world that we can carry that same ministry forward, the ministry of reconciliation. Then he goes on to say this, that that God has committed you and I to the ministry of reconciliation. He gives us this designation. He says, you are ambassadors. You represent the king. God is making an appeal to the world through you. The values that God holds to be so dear, you need to hold dear. And among those is the ministry of reconciliation. 
So here it is, the key verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And all of this comes from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is it? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then he has committed us to the same, to the message of reconciliation. Now, as you keep your thumb in that little passage... I want you to flip all the way back to one of the early books in the Old Testament. We're in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 14, in verse 14, kind of an obscure little passage, but I want you to notice just how far back in sacred history this idea goes, just how far back it was that God has this idea in mind, the ministry of reconciliation. And so to a world that is deeply divided back then, still deeply divided today, listen to what God says, 2 Samuel fourteen fourteen. But this is not what God desires, he says. Rather, God devises ways so that those who are banished don't remain banished. That those who are separated from him don't remain separated from him. The Hebrew expression there is that, that God is always inventing new ways to do this. It's, it's like he's, he's almost in a sneaky way weaving together new ideas to make this happen. How do we bridge the gap? How do we close the space between? The reconciliation, not a new idea, but one that has its roots in the mind of God and goes back to the very earliest days of the story of humanity. What I'd like to do this morning with our time is work through a passage of Scripture that looks at this question of reconciliation, at just how far we ought to go, how far we need to go in working with our neighbors. Then I want to imagine with you what it would look like for us to be kind of like the the seismic echoes of that reconciliation that we've experienced. I want to start with you in Luke, in chapter 10, with a fascinating story, one of the best-known stories that Jesus tells. If you grew up in the church, you probably learned this one in Sunday school. You probably watched it play out on flannel graphs. You probably dramatized it yourself. If you were here with us last year, early in 2019, you might remember that we looked at this story in the midst of our series on the parables of Jesus. But I'm here to tell you this morning that this is not really a children's story. When you begin to understand what Jesus is trying to do with it, this story is, well, it's rated PG-13 at least. And if you didn't grow up in the church, if you hear it fresh for the first time today, then you're going to realize just how controversial this really was. So starting in Luke 2, in chapter 25, we're going to pick up the story where it says there was an expert in the law who came to ask Jesus a question. Now that was common practice back in those days. Jesus was a rabbi, a wandering teacher. Different experts, authorities in legal matters, religious leaders would stop. And when they saw a crowd gathering around them, 
they would pose their own questions. Listen to what the Gospel of Luke says about the question that this particular expert is going to bring. And he draws out something about the motivation for it that maybe wouldn't have been apparent for those who were listening. He says in Luke 10, 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? On the face of it, sounds like a good question, doesn't it? But there was something going on underneath it. It was meant to be kind of like a litmus test. Remember litmus tests back in science class, that little strip of paper, you dipped it in the water and it turned either pink or blue based on how acidic the water was. It was a test to try and feel out whether Jesus was on the right side of things. Is he on our side? Is he on the other side? We have lots of those kinds of questions today in the church. What do you believe about hell? What do you believe about the infallibility of the Bible? What do you believe about evolution? What do you believe about homosexuality? And while we may be genuinely interested in the answer, more often than not, when people ask the question, what they're really trying to figure out is whose side you're on. Are you with us or are you with them? And so what the expert in law is really trying to do here is find out whether Jesus was one of them or not. Religious leaders, they'd grown increasingly uncomfortable with what Jesus was doing in his teachings. For Jesus, it wasn't just about following a set of rules. For Jesus, there was something deeper going on. And the expert to the law asked the question and is fully expecting to hear the litmus test answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Follow the rules. Obey the law. Do it consistently. Do it concretely. Do it effectively. And you will inherit eternal life. I think probably knowing something about the motivation that was underneath the question, Jesus answers the question with a question of his own. It's kind of like a scene out of Columbo or something. He volleys back another question. And so Jesus says, and this is as we read on, what is written in the law? He replies, how do you read it? And he, the expert in the law, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Beautiful answer, isn't it? And Luke goes on. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And really that should have been the end of the encounter. But, but the leader, the leader of, uh, of, of the law and of religious uh, structure and authority in his day, he comes back with yet another question. He recited the passage. Jesus says, you're correct. That should have been the end of it. But, but again, Luke gives us a little bit of insight into what's going on in the man's soul. And it says, this is in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Again, in that day, the vast majority of religious leaders would define the neighbor as someone who looked and acted and lived just like they did. It's a very narrow 
a very defined, socially accepted circle of people, predominantly Jewish, certainly like them, who would fit this definition for neighbor. And so the idea would be that my love for my neighbor extends only as far as my family and my people, as those who are just like me. And so instead of giving an answer, Jesus decides to to tell a story. And he uses a very typical Hebraic framework in telling the story. Employs three different pieces of action to tell it. Come, do, and go. In the story, each of the central characters will come, they'll do something, and then they'll leave the story. Keep that in mind as we make our way through. And so the story begins. Luke 10, verse 29. Who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus says... A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. Unlike us, everybody listening to the story would be familiar with that 17-mile road that went from Jerusalem down into Jericho. Narrow and twisty and dangerous and lots of places for bandits to hide. Jesus says, when he went down the road, he fell into the hands of robbers. And this is a key part of the story. Look at how he describes what happens. It says, they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they left him lying half dead. Why those details? Well, certainly it it helps us understand the seriousness of what happened, but realize also, a man lying naked and beaten on the side of the road leaves no cues to where they fit in the different social and cultural and, 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 and linguistic structures of the day. So we don't know. We don't know, is, is this a neighbor? Is this one of the acceptable people that should receive love and compassion for whom the command that that expert in the law just recited should apply? People are listening to the story. They're leaning forward. And when Jesus speaks the next two words, they're thinking, The hero of the story has come. Verse 31, it says, a priest. A priest happened to be going down the same road. But when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, usually when a priest was done with their priestly duties in the temple, the work that they were doing there on the Saturday, which was their Sabbath, they would leave either at the end of the day or at first light early the next morning, and they would travel that long, twisty, dangerous road from from Jerusalem into Jericho. They'd leave the hustle and the busyness of the city to their every other day of the week home. But they'd be riding. They wouldn't be walking because they were from a, a position of some establishment. And they knew it was a dangerous place. You didn't travel that road on foot. And so the priest, having just fulfilled all of his religious duties was traveling that same road from Jerusalem to Jericho. In verse 31, it says, And when he saw the man, remember the three stages of action, he's coming into the story. Now, what will the do be? When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. I expect the crowds probably snickered a little bit when they heard that. Uh, not, Not because of what he did or didn't do, but because they knew that road to Jericho. There was no passing by on the other side. 
This isn't a multi-lane divided highway as we imagine it. This is a, a rocky little footpath. To pass by on the other side is impossible. Instead, all you can really do is goad up the head of your donkey so you don't notice what's underneath as you trample literally right over the body of the beaten man. And maybe already in the story, those who are listening, they're surprised by the fact that apparently this priest doesn't do anything. And then he goes. And he leaves the story. My guess is he's probably thinking that on this lonely, isolated, 17-mile stretch of road, nobody's going to see the choice that I make. I'm just going to keep going. Nobody will be the wiser. But whatever the reason, Jesus goes on to introduce the next character in the story, the next one who will come and do and go. And he says, so to a Levite. I'm guessing at that point, the crowd are a bit relieved because the Levite was also part of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was one of them. He was part of the priestly families. Jesus is going to make this story right with the Levite, but Jesus repeats himself. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, did nothing, and passed by on the other side. Now, they're probably not at all sure where Jesus is going with the story now. But they remember that Jesus is telling the story to answer this question. Who is my neighbor? How far outside the concentric circles of my life do I have to go before God considers me having done enough to obey that command to care for my neighbor? And so being a little surprised, maybe, that that the priest... And the Levite, they, they come, and they do nothing, and then they go. The majority of people will be leaning in, thinking, we know what's coming next. It'll be the ordinary, good-hearted Jewish citizen who comes next, who intervenes on behalf of the wounded man. Maybe not somebody higher up the social ladder, but still one of the tribe. And the next three words in the story, I guarantee you, would have drawn an audible gasp from the crowd. You can picture mothers covering the ears of their children when Jesus says this, because he reveals the hero of the story, verse 33, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. I mean, they can hardly believe what Jesus has said. Imagine for a moment, if you can, somebody is so far outside your circle that you would have no trouble whatsoever going to great lengths to avoid them, refusing to show them any basic human compassion. And whatever the difference was, it it could be political, it it could be economic or religious or ethnic, whatever, but somebody who is so distant from you that you could easily pass on the idea of being a neighbor to them. That's what Jesus is saying to this expert in the law. It's not just that the person you least expected to be the hero of the story now appears. It's the person you never even would have imagined would be in the story at all. For the Jewish people, the Samaritans were a hated half-breed nation. They were despised. If you were traveling from Jerusalem in the south to Judah in the north, you would go dozens and dozens of miles out of your way days out of your way to avoid ever setting foot in their territory or crossing paths with a Samaritan. 
And now Jesus is including him in the story as the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And now that Jesus has said it, but a Samaritan, now that he's got the knife in, he's going to twist it just a little bit further. He's come into the story. But he doesn't just come. Let's look now at the do. Because Jesus focuses on the Samaritan's actions. And he gives us seven do's that the Samaritan did. Seven kind of staccato actions that show compassion for this beaten man on the side of the road. So follow along as we read it together. It says, he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him, that is, he closed the space between them. Fourth, he bandaged up his wounds. Fifth, he poured on oil and wine, medical treatment, a basic antiseptic in the day. Fifth, he put the man on his own donkey. Sixth, he brought him to an inn. And seventh, he paid the innkeeper for his care. And they could hardly believe what he just said at the beginning, but a Samaritan. But now Jesus is saying he did this and this and this and this and this. And then Jesus said that that man promised to return to the innkeeper in a few days and reimburse him for any and all future expenses. He hits the note of do over and over and over again. Who is my neighbor? At the end of the story, Jesus, he just lets the tension hang up there in the air. And he asks that expert in the law the final question. Which of those three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You answer the question. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus told him, go, go and do likewise. Those are the kind of stories that when you hear them, they never quite leave you. The stories that Jesus told that you turn over and over and over again in your mind. I promise you that as that expert in the law was walking away and Maybe as the crowds were, were mumbling among themselves on their way back home, they were thinking, you know, what did I just hear? What does it mean? I wonder if you would reflect for just a minute. In the quiet of your own home, uh, as we're listening and worshiping together, on what it would look like to be the distant 21 century later echo of what Jesus set in motion way back then. What creative new ways can we weave together to foster reconciliation, to close the space between? Right now, as as we're listening together, and in a few minutes as we close the service and sing together, Right now, as we're in worship, there are single moms spread throughout this city who don't know if they'll have enough money at the end of the month to make rent and feed their kids. Because of your generosity, we had a chance to meet lots of them this week. 
In fact, we handed out about $15,000 in assistance to families in our region. Right now, as we're worshiping, there are overlooked business leaders who maybe are in your place of work who need to know that this is not all there is, that there is a better life. The Christmas holidays offer them nothing that they're looking forward to. What would it look like to be an echo of neighborly compassion in the life of your colleagues this year? Right now, as we're worshiping, there are stressed out business owners whose shops are closed who just don't know if they're going to make it through another year end. They're fighting just to survive. What would it look like to echo something of Jesus' compassion in their life this year? Right now, as we're worshiping, there are burned out hospital workers who just are convinced that they can't go on. The light is on the horizon, but that light is still six to 12 months away before it achieves its full effectiveness. What would it look like to be a neighbor to them? Right now, as we're worshiping, there are despondent young adults. There are isolated older adults who are about ready to give up on all of it. And they're convinced that no one will miss them if they do. In your coming and in your going, what will you do? You and I have been given, the Bible says, this ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors for Jesus to say a resounding yes to all those people who are out there on the margins. Not just to come and go. In fact, this year when our coming and going has been so dramatically curtailed, maybe there's a chance to sit back and be more intentional about what it is that we do. This Christmas, we won't just come and go. It will be our due that echoes the reconciling miracle of Jesus' birth. Let me pray for you as you think creatively about what that can look like over the coming weeks. Let me pray for all of us as we draw this part of our service to a close so that the next part of our service our greater service to the world can begin. You join me as we pray. Now to our good Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the way that you went to great extremes to think of Jesus, to send him as the solution to the distance between us. And so now, Lord, as I, as I pray for each of us, for all of those gathered in rooms across this city, that our gratitude would, would be so overwhelming that the overflow would be a sacrificial, ongoing commitment to reconciliation, to waves and waves of reconciliation that sweep out and echo from each of our homes that change the fabric and the face of the people who live within neighborhoods and nations. God, I thank you that for this next week, 
when we can marvel at the way that your son who died on the cross entered the world as a baby quietly and slowly. And as we can savor the, the emerging realization of reconciliation that it's available to all of us. God, that these, these beautiful sacred realities would overwhelm us. We are so grateful for Jesus. We pray everything in his name. Amen.